Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the History Hit Warfare podcast, and I'm your host, James Rogers. In this episode, we're talking about Major General Strickland, the tank hero of Arras, a man who rose up from penniless hardship to become a man of great military distinction. He climbed the ranks from private to general. And who better to talk about Strickland than his son, Tim Strickland? Tim is the author of a new book, Strick. Tank Hero of Arras, with Casemate Publishing. And in this book, he offers insight into the art of command, how to be a good leader, and the importance of good tactics, and, well, having better tanks than your adversary. I know you're going to love this episode, so please share far and wide with all those you know who are passionate about history. Leave a review wherever you get your podcast, and even get in touch with us on our new dedicated email, warfare at historyhit.com. So here is Tim on his legendary father, Major General Strickland. Hi Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. How are you doing today? Well, I'm very well and it's very nice to join you online with this modern technology. Yes, it is a miracle and something which has just got better and better during COVID. There are not many positives of this global endless pandemic, but one of them is that we're able to communicate just that little bit better. And it is great to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, because we're going to talk about a man, Major General Eugene Vincent Michael Strickland, otherwise known as Strick, a legendary figure in military service. A tank man, a war hero who fought in France, North Africa and Italy during the Second World War. But of course, to you, he was dad. So tell us a little about your father. Where did his journey begin? Well, the story begins for me when he died in 1982 and my mother decided that of her five children, I was the one who would actually read all his papers and attempt to understand them. So it began a long time ago when I got this crate of the most amazing stuff, which mainly turned out to include, amongst all the sort of official reports which you can imagine, it included a wartime correspondence, thousands of letters between them. My father had written every second or third day of his war to my mother. 
That's incredible. So you had a deluge of information to try and sort through and understand. Had you ever spoken about any of this with your father? Oh, I never spoke to him about that. But, of course, I spoke to him a lot about his war and his life because, unlike some people's fathers, he was quite willing to talk about these things. I learnt in the process that the key to getting answers to questions when you're in that situation with a parent is to know enough about the subject to be able to ask the right questions. It's no good asking, what did you do in the war? That doesn't get you anything. What you have to do is ask, why were your tanks on Longstop Hill? Then you get information. So did you have a passion for the Second World War and learning about the history of the war from an early age then? Because there aren't many young children who would be looking into that much detail to go through and to find out about where the tanks were placed, where they went wrong, where the victories and the defeats were. Was this something that you had a passion for or was it a way for you to engage with your dad? Well, I think it was partly the relationship with him. You know, he was a person that you could talk to and relate to about these things. But at the same time, after he died, when it began to become clear to me that if I didn't sort all this out and record it all and research it, it might be lost. You know how families have these stories. They get garbled down the generations and in the end there are a few papers left in an attic which somebody unknowing throws away. You know, so I thought the only thing to do was to research it, to get the context. So, of course, it was what I now know is far more than I would have known when he was alive. That is incredible. And your family are very lucky because you're absolutely right. As the papers get handed down through generations, I think it's quite intimidating to start with that giant pile or many boxes of papers and to try and figure out that history or to perhaps even get it wrong as well. And we as historians, when we stumble across these family histories and hidden files and boxes, they are like gold dust. They are amazing things to find and for us to explore. But often, as you say, these can be thrown away, misplaced. They can get mouldy and damp in the loft where a pigeon has made a nest. And that has definitely happened, believe me. So it's great that you were able to take that mantle and really try to, well, bring this history to a broader audience. So let's get into that. Because one thing I find fascinating about your father's story is that he didn't have a traditional military background of a high-ranking officer. He didn't come from a family of high-ranking officers. He rose up from penniless hardship to great military distinction. So when did his military career begin? I think it began in 1932 when he was leaving school and wanted to go to the Indian Army and the only way to afford to go to Sandhurst in those days was to win what was called a King's Cadetship, equivalent of a total scholarship, right? You've got to remember that in those days Sandhurst was like a private school. Parents had to pay to send their children there. It's something that's been forgotten. So there was no salary when you were an officer cadet. You had money that your parents gave you, right? He didn't have any of that. So the King's cadetship made that possible for him. It gave him the scholarship. That was the beginning of it, 1932. 
he must have been a pretty bright young man then to have got that scholarship and gone into the military. Was it everything that he wanted it to be? Was this the start of what he thought was a long and distinguished career? Well, I don't think he thought like that. This is something, you know, those who are listening to us in today's generations need to understand. He was born and bred in India. Until 1922, his mother, who had been born and bred in India, had never seen this place called England. She had heard of it. People talked about it and wrote letters to people in England. They called it home, but they'd never been there had absolutely no idea about what this country was like. It's interesting, isn't it, when you think of it like that? So his background was India, so his home was India. He was wanting to go back to it, and the Indian Army was the way to do that. Oh, wow, yes. I suppose, if you think about it, he was a third-generation part of the British Empire in India. And to think that you'd never gone as you call it in inverted commas almost, home, is a very strange thing to think. And to join up to the military, I suppose, was one way of doing that. How did he find it there? Was he in the military long to start with? He not only on the purely military side of things, absolutely loved it. He was like a duck to water. It was exactly what he hoped for and it would be. But there were social factors which he had great difficulty with. Remember, he was a very inexperienced, rather naive young man. He was very clever, and I think some of his achievements were based on that, you know, from school, getting scholarships and things. So he was quick with his intellect, but he was not ready for this business of mixing with people for whom shortage of money wasn't a problem. Ah, I see. So there was a little bit of perhaps not feeling a sense of belonging or camaraderie and kinship within the military at that time. It is different when you come from a very outsider background to fit in with those families that have been in the military, like I said, for generations, or indeed have worked their way up within family circles. So did he leave the military? What did he do next? Well, it's the most interesting thing. If I can just go back slightly on that, you've got to also remember that some members of his family, in his family background, had been there for over 200 years in India. So, you know, one can't underestimate that. It should be a feature in our understanding of Strick, as he was to become. So having returned to this world that was in so many ways his home, not being able to afford to keep up the life, there was another factor in this which you need to remember that... In those days, when people like Strick went to the Indian Army, they started immediately after they were commissioned from Sandhurst in something called the Unattached List India Army, which meant that for the first year or so, you were attached not to an Indian Army regiment, but to a British Army regiment that happened to be in India. Do you understand the significance of that? I so we're I talking about regiments it. that exist today in our army who happened to be stationed in India at the time, right? That is why he was sent for his unattached list service to the Shropshire Light Infantry. Ah, I see. So people with a very different background to his own. Very much so. Of course, officers in regiments like that in those days, we're talking about the early 30s, remember, were in a world in which 
If they were desperately short of money, there was somebody behind them in their background to help them through. Yes, of course, something your father did not have. Yeah. So what he had instead was a love of India, love of the whole idea of the Indian Army. But he couldn't stand the racism. He was not ready for that, despite the fact that he had been born in India. He was not ready for this looking down on the Indians, even in their own country. And if I can give you a good example of that, amongst his contemporaries at Sandhurst, there were five or six in his company, five or six Indians, who were being given king's commissions like his own. And despite that, the moment they got on the troop ships to India, told my father that they could no longer be on exactly equal terms. Now, that was the beginning of my father's, not exactly a shock, but a dawning awareness of the fact that he thought we were not behaving the way we should behave. So that was partly what you and I today would call snobbery. You know, we call it racism, but it's more than that. It's a kind of snobbery, you know. My father said to the day he died that our stupid attitude, that's his word, stupid attitude, towards the Indians went on to the very end of our time in India. What you and I, James, would probably be irritated, angered by today. But it was a different world, remember. Most people didn't see that. We need to remember that. Another factor, so with this racism business, young officers were given bearers, you know, to general sort of factotum servants, to Indian servants. In his case, his bearer was a Patan tribesman called Bagar Khan. I stress the pronunciation of that carefully. They became very great friends very quickly, my young Strick and his bearer. Unusually for officers in those days, he even got to know his bearer's family. So he was beginning to demonstrate something which, in years to come post-war, would serve his country very well, which was an ability to get on with the people of other countries, who normally looked at us with a sort of slight reservation because they thought we were slightly superior in our attitude to them. Do you know what I mean? So from the beginning he was demonstrating that, but that was a factor which separated him from most of his other English friends in the Shropshire Light Infantry, who couldn't really quite understand how an officer could be mixing with the Indians on equal terms or even want to. So how long did he stay in the Shropshire Light Infantry for? He started at the very beginning of 34 and resigned his commission in May 1935. Was that a resignation in protest of all of these elements that you've outlined to us? The first thing you've got to remember, I mentioned earlier the fact that he didn't have any money. And so he was not as careful as he might have been with what money he had. And, of course, he led into this thing which, for young men, is very, very important. You know, you and I talk about the peer group, whoever they may be, and we want to keep with them and up with them, you know, whatever the context is, because they're friends and you don't want to let yourself down. He had this issue mixing with people who didn't have the lack of money that he had, but he spent money and borrowed money and got into debt, keeping up with it. And if you think about that, it's a fairly 
I wouldn't say that I would accept it, but I would say that it's understandable. And, of course, every now and then, someone would say, how are you going to pay your mess bill, young Strickland? And the time came when he said, I'm unable to. And that was quite a serious issue in those days because the alternative was for the regiment to have to pay, which was not done, if I can use that expression, right? It was not the regiment's responsibility. It was the individual's responsibility to pay what he was costing. So the regiment called him in formally and said, what are you doing about settling your debts? And he said he had no way of settling them. They said, if this is going to be a serious matter, it can even lead to court-martial. Fortunately, at that point, his elder brother, who was already serving in the Indian Army as a Gurkha and became quite a distinguished Gurkha, as it happens, he said to the regiment, I will pay some of my brother's debts, not all of them, but some of them. As a result of that, the Shropshire Light Infantry agreed to pay the remaining debts and warned him that he needed to be a bit more careful about spending money in future. Now, at that point, the racism and the way his bearer had been treated got the better of him. And being the sort of young person he was, he was quite, what's the word, impulsive. He was angered about the way things had been dealt with and that he had not been helped more and that his attitude to the Indians had not been respected and he just began to get really quite angry, even insubordinate probably and said, no, no, I want to resign. The colonel tried to stop him resigning, but he insisted on resigning, age 21. And, of course, the moment the resignation was formally accepted, he had to leave. That brings us to the next stage in the story, when I wait for your question, James. (laughs) Yes, so tell us. He has left on a mixture of, well, morals principles, but also financially just not being able to keep up with the lifestyle of those from much richer backgrounds. And he leaves the military, I assume, with very little money still in his pocket. So what does he do next? Well, the first thing was that he had no option. He had to leave India. Ah. He hadn't told his mother, who was living as a widow, remember, in London, if she didn't hear for another year what had happened to him. On his voyage back, he was still given the privileges of being a commissioned officer, right? It was a troop ship, remember. It called in at various places on the way back, and at the first place it called in um, from Bombay was Port Sudan, east coast of Africa, think of it. Still the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, the province, remember. And at Port Sudan, he was ordered to leave the ship because a rather more important officer had demanded access to the ship and they had to give him Strick's cabin. So he was ordered to leave the ship. But the terms of his voyage home were quite clear. He had to report in wherever he was to officialdom, in this case to presumably the headquarters of the Governor-General of the Sudan, to explain that he was waiting for the next ship. At which point the Governor-General heard that there was a young British officer available and at a time when his own ADC had spent six months on home leave in England and was therefore away 
And the governor needed a dog's body to do whatever a young officer does for a governor-general. And so Strick ended up for a couple of weeks or so working for him in the Sudan. Eventually, a suitable ship came and he was given another berth. And the next part of the voyage, of course, took him through the Med and round through. And, of course, the final coaling station was at Cherbourg. Now, by the time he got there, he had been wondering about what he was going to do with his life, and he had been rather worried about his mother, what she was going to do. She was capable of giving a thrashing, you know, <laughs> to discipline him. I have no doubt, absolutely. And uh, so he decided at Cherbourg, he sent a telegram to the India office from the ship and said he was not going back to England, and left the ship at Cherbourg and walked to Paris. 250 miles, and decided what he was going to do was join the French Foreign Legion. And, of course, the French Foreign Legion was not only a very big thing in those days, it's a pale reflection of what it was now, but the thing about the French Foreign Legion was that it appealed to a lot of people of Strick's generation because of the famous story, Beau Geste, in which the young Englishman considered to be dishonourable for some reason that was not his fault at all, had to leave home and honour and all these things and signed on in the Foreign Legion and had an amazing career and returned in glory some years later, right? So this story really appealed to people like Strick and he thought that is what he was going to do. And I must say, to the day he died in the 1980s, Beaugest was his favourite story. Oh, wow. Well, there's certainly an amount of romance tied up into that, isn't there? So how long was he in the French Foreign Legion? He never got to it. He never got to it. He got to to Paris, Paris? signed on in Paris, and the officer in the recruiting place in central Paris gave him a chit and said, look, take this to whichever station it was tomorrow morning at 3 o'clock tomorrow morning, and the train for Marseille will be departing show your piece of paper to whoever confronts you and that will take you to our recruiting depot outside Marseille, right? Where the training would begin. Seems straightforward enough. Failed to wake up in time the following morning (laughs) and realised that it was no good going back to the Frau Nijan and saying, look, I'm very sorry I didn't wake up in time. You can imagine that wouldn't have gone down very well. So he was really stuck. What was he going to do? He talked to various people and somebody said, look, there are jobs available if you're willing to hang around and eventually ended up being offered the most extraordinary temporary job in central Paris, in one of the main streets of central Paris, to be the commissioner outside a very famous beauty salon which belonged to the famous Helena Rubinstein. Right? It's still there. And he was given the uniform coat of the real commissioner who was sick and for a few weeks he had that job standing outside the front door of a famous outlet in central Paris opening the door for people and presumably receiving tips but most importantly learning how to speak French so fluently that I can tell you Years later, I would sit with him in restaurants in France where the waiter would say, which part of France do you come from? It was so good, it's French. Interesting, isn't it? 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and in my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, I'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Belethgeth to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. How long was he in Paris for? Because to get that fluent, unless, I mean, he's a genius. By the sounds of it, he's a smart guy. But he must have been a good few years in Paris to get that good at French. I think, well, of course, he had done French at school, you know, to the equivalent of what you and I would call O-level or whatever, you know. But the point really was that he had a gift. And he was in Paris for about five weeks, six weeks at the most. And in the course of that time, he must have had a very, very interesting eye-opening experience of life. So the French was one factor. The other factor was learning about life and how to cope with it. So when, much to his horror and surprise, the real commissioner came back and confronted him and said, I want my coat back tomorrow morning. You better go. He was left wondering what to do. Somebody then told him he must have talked to all sorts of people. And somebody said, look... You may get a job on one of the steamers that is leaving Port-Rouen. So he walked another five days walking on the main road from Paris to Rouen and found, much to his delight, found an English collier steamer was willing to give him a job as a stoker. The horrifying side of this was that this was a transatlantic collier and he was going to end up having to deal with whatever stokers do, hired manual labour, as you can imagine, 
all the way across the Atlantic to Nova Scotia and then back and ended up at Pembroke Dock in South Wales when the ship pulled in at the very end of this voyage, not been able to spend any of the money that he was paid as a stoker, so he had enough money to take a train up to London and to give some more thought to what he would do. Then came the next shock. You've got to remember that at school, at Sandhurst and in India, he hadn't come to terms with the depression that England had been going through. A serious depression, and it was only beginning to come out of it in 1935. There were not many jobs about. Any interview that he got, you can imagine, very quickly somebody would say to him, tell me, what have you been up to lately? And it was immediately clear that he was hiding something. So any more sensible openings, the sort of jobs that you and I might assume he would look for, were denied him because of what had happened to him. In desperation, he decided to go back to the only thing he knew something about, the army. He called in at the recruiting office in Knightsbridge and tried to get his commission back. He was pretty naive and innocent, you know. Why should the army give him back his commission after what had happened? It was even better than that. And, of course, in retrospect, it's quite funny because the officer running the recruiting office in Knightsbridge took one look at him and said, I know who you are. You're bloody Strickland. I remember meeting you in Delhi. Oh, so dear. he signed on in desperation as a private soldier in the Royal Tank Corps, as it was then, because they were looking for people of above-average intelligence and technical ability. So that began in September 1935, the beginning of the next great stage in his military career. Private Strickland. Private Strickland, from an officer down to an enlisted man. So... Tell us, he has the next five years to learn, well, four years, to learn his craft as a tank man. Does he take to it like a duck to water? Oh, I think he did, instantly. You've got to remember the experiences had gone through. He was already a much more mature person. But at the same time, he had this gift of getting on with people. And do you know, people he made friends with in his barrack block... They knew him for the rest of his life on first-name terms, even when he was a general. I have all their letters to him. You know, that's how the whole story for me began, because these letters were filled with devotion. They really did think the world of him as a person because of the way he behaved with them. So that went right through, a lot of them went right through, a lot of them were killed in the war, of course, but those that survived remained friends of his for life. One of them told me a most amusing story. He said, you know, you've got to remember, years later in the 70s, when we had these regimental reunions, Strick would turn up as the great general who they wanted to hear speak, and he accosted one of them when he was getting a beer at the bar and said, hello, Pat, I remember you. The last time I saw you, I was in charge of the coal lorry at Farnborough. Do you remember? And Pat Barrington looked at him with astonishment and said, you know, how can you remember? How can you even recognise me after all this? But he had that gift, and they loved him for it. 
He sounds very much like an everyman, but of course, this is the sort of person that you will and want to follow into battle. This is the sort of person that you want to be in charge of your company or indeed your regiment or indeed the entirety of your tank corps. So tell us, take us into those first stages of the war. When does your father first see battle? May 1940 at Arras, which was a very, very famous event where his battalion, the 4th RTR, with the 7th RTR, both of 1st Army Tank Brigade, went into action. Apparently, I have to stress this because it was a measure of Strick's experience that led him to behave the way he did later in the war, none of them really were told what they were doing. They weren't told what they were supposed to be doing. They just went into action because the Germans were over there, right? What happened in the event was that they frightened the wits out of the great Rommel. He was so seriously inconvenienced by the arrival of these British tanks that he even to get his own people fighting them with the degree of aggression that was needed to stop these tanks breaking through went down and ordered the guns over the sights himself. So this extraordinary action for Strick was the beginning of his real fighting war as a sergeant commanding a troop of three tanks. Straight into the action, confronting his squadron sergeant major, Jock Armit, who was a very famous character, who was dealing with a German battery of anti-tank guns and destroying it, who said, go on, go on, deal with the others, they're down the red. He confronted a line of German lorry transport and shot them up. And, you know, the French military historians on the Battle of Arras record this event in their own books as a German-destroyed convoy. And that was Strick. In the course of it, he said, come on, we met to his driver, we must continue on this particular road into the suburbs of Arras. We turned out to be the wrong road and they got lost. You imagine that, going through the city of Arras while it was being bombed by Stukas and not quite knowing what they were meant to do. So Strick decided the only thing to do was to go back to where I started. So he headed back through the centre of Arras and as he was going down the road to Lille, which was the main road that he knew that regiment had started on, he confronted a whole lot of Germans who were running down a side street into a kind of corrugated iron barn or shed. So he ordered his driver to follow them and fire a few rounds into the front door of this barn, out of which came immediately a white flag and a whole lot of Germans, in his original account of the story, he said it looked about 80 soldiers, but in a later account he said it may have been 50, but it was a lot. And these soldiers came out, put their arms down, and kept their white flag up, and were quite happy to be made prisoner. So then began the most extraordinary story of Streck ordering these German prisoners to march down the road to Lille in front of him and various other people witnessed it. And one of the most interesting ones was a young officer, Tony Austin, who was in the same regiment, who was interviewed by the Imperial War Museum in the 1980s. 
And he said, I remember seeing Sergeant Strickland with all his German prisoners walking down the road. The brigadier noticed it. Even the general who was responsible for the whole operation noticed it. So it went into the annals of regimental history, you know, Strick's prisoners. How could you not notice it? Quite the sight. I mean, you generate imagery in my head right now, seeing these soldiers marching on down with a tank behind them, kicking them up the arse and pushing them forwards. I mean, it's quite the image. He must have been, well, at least mentioned in dispatches or decorated for such action. Well, of course, he ended up being decorated with the military medal, which, as you may know, James, doesn't exist anymore. It was a decoration created in 1916, really, during the Battle of the Somme. And it was for other ranks, for bravery in the field. It has that written on the back of it, for bravery in the field. And Strick was awarded that. And it was that decoration, when he was an officer again, that made him almost unique. There was only one other contemporary of his who rose to general, who had an MM, but this other man didn't have all the other decorations Strick had. So we won't talk about him in detail. So Strick was unique in getting that MM in view of what later happened to him. And to the day he died, of all his decorations, and he had a number of others by then, it was the only one that really, really mattered to him. He was most proud of it, the thing that he had got as another rank. The one that he had earned with his troops in those opening stages of the war. Now, we know what happens in this period of the war. We know how, of course, the British, along with the French force, are turned around, they're almost encircled, and they have to make their retreat back. And this leads us through, of course, to the evacuations at Dunkirk. But when he finally gets back and rallies, what's his next stage of the war? What's his next stage of fighting? Well, the next stage is North Africa. But if I can just very briefly, just explain very quickly, he was recommissioned. He was the first person from the regiment to be recommissioned soon after getting back from Dunkirk. Given his original seniority as a full lieutenant, a week after that, he was a captain. Three months after that, he was a major. This was in that difficult time just after the Battle of Britain when we were beginning to have to shake ourselves up again, basically, and become a modern army that was capable of defeating the Germans. So they needed people like Strick. You know, in peacetime armies, they don't always shine because they're gifted at war and leadership and not necessarily at all the other things that are important in peacetime. So he went as a major to Tunisia with the First Army early in 1943... Most of us hear about the 8th Army and Monty in Alamein and all that. Not so many people remember the 1st Army that actually completed the campaign and defeated, finally, the Germans in Tunisia. And Strick was part of that. So tell us about that campaign. When did he enter into Tunisia? February 1943. The entire new tank brigade that he was part of the 25th Army Tank Brigade, right? Remember the significance of the term army here. We have two different kinds of tank brigades in the Second World War. We have armoured brigades that are part of 
armoured divisions and we have army tank brigades that are under army command, not divisional command. In other words, you can assign them wherever they're needed rather than leaving them within their own division. So the significance of that word army is a particularly British thing. They don't exist anymore, these army tank brigades. But the whole point was that these were tank brigades that were specialised in supporting infantry with a new tank that was designed specifically for that purpose, the Churchill tank, which, of course, had gone through a lot of teething troubles, as you well know, but by early 43, they'd got through the teething troubles and it was beginning to become a rather effective, reliable tank with one quality which none of the others had on both sides, even any of the German tanks. It could climb hills. And in 1943, armoured warfare, tanks weren't meant to climb up hills. Three of Strick's tanks climbed a 3,000-foot mountain ridge and as a result of that, the Germans were shattered and shocked by these things and, of course, could not cope with it. They had no tanks that could deal with it. So he was instrumental in applying this new tank in a totally new tactical method that led first to the defeat of the Germans at a thing called Hans Gap and then, more significantly, the Battle of the Ten Peaks near Wedzaga in western Tunisia. Ten peaks, but won by Strix tanks as a squadron leader in the North Irish Horse. So let me just get this straight, because the fact that tanks can climb hills, go up peaks, almost climb a mountain with that sort of height that they're going up, I mean, that may not sound like much at the first instance. I mean, especially today, all right, you'd expect a tank to be able to do that. But during a time when tanks are the most important weapon, in fact, having supremacy in tank warfare means that you can either win or lose a war. If you can get your tanks into an area where your enemy can't get tanks, then you've won the battle. That's as simple as. It's as black and white as that. So the fact that your father was able to move the tanks into those places, when he turned up to the battle and fought those Germans, they must have been looking and thinking, what the hell is going on? You're not meant to have tanks involved in this, and it shatters their strategy. Well, yes, on two or three distinct occasions on these tops of these peaks, the Germans ran. They weren't ready for it. No, I'd have done the same thing. And But, of course, the tactics of the use of tanks in action was developing and changing all the time. As you know, these things happen in war because you can't afford to lose, you know. You have to learn how to get it right. So this business of working with infantry who are used to working with you, both infantry and tanks know how to communicate with each other with instant understanding... Those were the things that were being developed because the tanks on their own couldn't have achieved it. You have to leave infantry in possession with what you've taken. You can't just drive the tanks away again because the enemy come back and reoccupy. And the Germans were gifted at counterattacks. Remember that. All through the war, everyone said that, you know, be ready for the counterattack. So who was your father's 
strategic, tactical, intellectual inspiration for these new tactics and practices that he introduced into tank warfare. Was he a disciple of a JFC Fuller school of thought around tanks, or was he truly an iconoclast in the way that he pushed forward his own way of thinking? Well, General Fuller, remember, and others of his time were wanting tanks to dominate the battlefield. And, of course, their thinking about armoured warfare developed in the aftermath of Arras and Cambrai and the Somme, 1916-1917, when, of course, the surprise factor had worked almost, almost, I say almost, as you well know, for other reasons which have nothing to do with tanks, really. The victory wasn't pursued. But Fuller's thinking and others of his generation was very much based on that idea that if you can have tanks that are so mechanically good and so mechanically sound that they can drive through everything, you can secure the victory with tanks alone. And they were wrong. And the Second World War demonstrated they were wrong. It is the actions in in Tunisia and later in Italy that demonstrated that you have to work with everybody else and you have to learn how to work with everybody else. Tanks, aircraft and infantry. All three have to know and be experienced at working with the others and knowing exactly how to do it and understanding each other instantly, changing the role. I mean, for example, you go into action with tanks and infantry and initially the infantry take the lead and instantly it is realised that that's a mistake. So you need to have a practice regime that enables you to instantly replace that with tanks taking the lead. Instant. It comes with practice and, of course, experience in the real job rather than training. Of course, and ability and some experience, just much like your father had, to see that you had to have that combined offensive, but to also bring those elements together in a way that perhaps many generals or many majors at that time who are very much within their own sections, their own services, do not like to have that sort of cooperation and coordination. We all know about the dire aspects of inter-service rivalry. So it sounds like your father was in the right place at the right time. How does this take him through into what I assume the next step from North Africa must have been into Italy? I think he had an ability to understand people and to be understood by people. There is no question about that. I mean, just to go back slightly earlier, because it makes the point, he was sent in the dark days just before we stopped thinking that, you know, you think of Dad's army. This is the time when we thought the Germans really were coming. He was sent by his brigade, the only officer sent by his brigade, to lecture to the Home Guard and to tell them what really does happen with tanks. Never mind what you want to believe. I'm going to tell you what really happened. So he had an ability to explain things and to understand things. And, of course, we now come to Italy. Well, now, Italy, in 1944, with all this background of hard experience, which we must never forget, he was given command of the North Irish horse for the breakout 
from Cassino in May 1944. Now, the whole point about this was that Alexander, our supreme commander in Italy, had devised a scheme that would get rid of the Germans from Italy. And this was Operation Diadem. And the idea was that Anzio, which you will know about, but which had not been the success it was meant to be, had it got bogged down in defensive-minded tactics, which had allowed the Germans to control it. But in May 1944, Alexander decided that he was going to have a concerted breakout. The first thing was that the abbey at Monte Cassino, the hills, the mountains, have you seen them? They're considerable hills, were going to be cleared by the Poles. The breakout into the Leary Valley, which was the direct inland route to Rome, was going to be cleared, and that was meant breaking through the Hitler line. And on the coast, the western coast, Mark Clark's 5th Army was going to shoot up the coast and join up with the force at Anzio and break out. And we're going to cut through behind Rome, not into Rome, but south of Rome, behind the retreating Germans and bottle them up. That was the whole idea. Strick's job in this, commanding the North Irish horse, was the principal factor, which was to break through the Hitler line defences, which the Germans, remember, had been preparing them for over six or seven months with the latest technology, including these horrible panther tank turrets set at ground level. And, of course, no-one on our side at that stage had ever seen them, even knew what they were, really. So the Hitler line had to be broken, which was going to release two corps, British and Canadian, straight up the Leary Valley towards Rome, driving the Germans before them quickly, while the Fifth Army came behind them and bottled them up. That was the plan. Because of what Mark Clark did in Rome... It didn't work, because instead of bottling the Germans up, he wanted a media-driven, glorious entry into Rome. But Strick's action was successful. It had done what it was meant to do. It broke the defences, the shattering defences of the Hitler line. Believe me, I've studied them and walked over the traces of them. And lost 32 of his tanks in one day in the process. 32 out of how many? Out of 55. 32 out of 55 as he went to break the Even on tanks that are written off, some of them are written off, 25 of them were written off. It was something like 30 of his people were killed in the process, which was fairly unheard of in a tank battalion at that time. But through bashing away at this German defence with the Canadian infantry who were absolutely wonderful, Strick said. They were the most wonderful soldiers. He was filled with admiration for them. They just kept smashing away in the face of all this horror and death and bloodshed, and eventually the Germans withdrew. No tactics involved in this. It was just slogging away in a First World War-style venture, what the army called a set-piece attack when you just go straight for the enemy. This is one of those occasions, isn't it, where we look back at the Second World War and think instead of these slick 
set piece movements and the routing and the fast moving tanks through around and behind the enemy and the pivots here and there it comes down to those battles of attrition just like those we saw coming out after d-day and trying to break out of normandy or indeed on those occasions where, like in Dieppe, we didn't make it off the beaches. And it was the Canadians again there who pushed through and through and had that high attrition rate. So it doesn't surprise me that this was the case in Italy as well. My granddad fought in Italy and I heard some stories from there. It was not easy fighting. They were not D-Day Dodgers by any way, shape. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that phrase into this because, as you know, they all sang it and, in fact, rather cynically, wanted to be D-Day Dodgers because they weren't. And this was the strange paradox, you know. They loved the song there. Have you ever heard it? It's brilliant. I haven't heard it. Go online, go to YouTube and put D-Day Dodgers in and you'll be very amused and entertained by it. I will do that and I will add a link to the D-Day Dodgers song into the bio for this episode so everyone listening can hear it as well. So tell us, Tim, how does your father's war come to an end? He had to slog through the Gothic line battles, which was months of action, death and piecemeal victories on nasty little hilltops, losing people all the time, a few here, a few there, in support of the wonderful Canadian infantry, and eventually broke through to the North Italian plains at the very end of 44, near Rimini, when the rains came, and came, and came, and came, and made, of course, the North Italian plain a quagmire that could not be crossed which is exactly what Kesselring had hoped he would achieve for Hitler, stopped the Allied advance. At that point, Streck was sent to command as commandant the training centre for armoured warfare in Italy, an enormous thing called the Royal Armoured Corps Training Depot at a place called Rieti, where... He Again, he went through the place like a... Well, how can you imagine it? I mean, they were like fire, almost, like flames. He found this was a thing that had been operating behind the lines and had become slack and rather uh, too comfortable. And he went through it. You can imagine, sort of, that people remembered him for going through it. In fact, 8th Army Command were putting bets on how quickly Streck was going to deal with it. And... He restored it to what he considered to be front-line efficiency. He sacked a few people in the process, can you imagine it? And picked a number of people who had been his troop sergeants in action and made them training instructors. People who really, really knew what was going on and who had actually been through it. Then came the Greek Civil War. So his next posting was the command of 40 Royal Tank Regiment in Athens and the Peloponnese, from which he returned finally in the summer of 1946. Wow, it's incredible, isn't it? A man who goes from an officer in India back down to private after working his way through being a stoker on a ship through to Nova Scotia and then manages to work his way back up 
to an officer and then to major general and doesn't come home until 1946. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you for taking the time to tell us about your father's remarkable career. And I would say his unique skill for leadership, for working with people of all ranks and all nationalities, and his skill in close combat battle, especially in terms of armoured warfare. Where can people read more about him? Well, of course, this is the whole point of the book that I've just written and has just been published by Casemate. So the reader, if they haven't already found it, they need to go to Casemate, their website, or to Amazon. There are plenty of other places, of course, people know better than I do how to buy books nowadays. But what they should look for is Strick, Tank Hero of Arras. Perfect. And we will put a link to that in our bio as well. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, James. It's been great fun. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.